Welcome to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there is anything in this message that you would like to talk about further, please go to our website, www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org. So let's just pray. We want to um, open the Word of God this morning and um, really want to hear from Him and... Um, Let's do that now. Jesus, as we open your word this morning, I pray that our eyes will be open to new truths of you. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts are expectant about what you want to say into our lives this morning. But Lord God, beyond just hearing the word, we want to be doers of the word so that when we leave this place this morning, the truths that you have given us will be better deep within our spirit, Lord, that they will change us, that they will make us more like you and that they will make us bold for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I once read a story in a magazine about an atheist who loved nature and he'd gone on a bit of a bushwalk and um, as he kept walking and he was admiring the nature trail, he kind of lost track of where he was. And when the time came for him to go back, he realised that he was actually hopelessly lost. And so for the first time in his life, he prayed to God. And he did come out alive eventually. And sometime later, he was relating the incident to his friends. And at the point where he mentioned about his prayer to God, one of his friends said, so how did God answer your prayer? And the, the man replied, well, before God could answer the prayer, a guide came along and led me to safety. Or then there was the man who was on top of the roof in a very great flood. And uh, a guy in a, a canoe comes along and says, mate, I can help you. Come down from the roof. I'll, I'll save you. And the man on the roof said, it's okay, I have faith in God. He's going to grant me a miracle. And of course, the water was rising and, and later, you know, the, the water's up to his waist height and a guy in a, a dinghy comes along and says, mate, hop in and I'll, I'll rescue you. I'll, I'll give you a lift. The man on the roof says, it's okay. I've got faith. God is going to grant me a miracle. A bit... A bit time later, the water's now up to chest height and, uh, you know, the guy's praying for his miracle and a couple of blokes in a, a tinny come along. Mate, get in, get in. You know, the water's rising and we're here to rescue you. And the guy says, it's okay. I, I've got faith. God is going to grant me a miracle. Sometime later, the, the water's up to his chin and they're doing helicopter reconnaissance by then and a helicopter comes over and, and drops down one of those rope ladders and the, the guy on patrol says, mate, climb up the ladder. You know, we're gonna, we're here to rescue you. And with water in his mouth, the guy says, it's okay. I believe in God and he's going to grant me a miracle. Well, consequently, the man drowns and he arrives at the gates of heaven with broken faith. And he says to Peter, I really thought that God was going to grant me a miracle and I feel so let down. And St. Peter smiles and he puts his arm around the man and he says, I don't know what you're complaining about. We sent you three boats and a helicopter. 
I wonder how many times we miss God's divine appointments in our lives. She was 14 years of age. She was an orphan. She was living in captivity in a foreign land and she saved a nation. And I am, of course, referring to Esther, the young orphan who became queen of Persia and saved the Jews from annihilation. So if you've got your Bibles there this morning, grab them. We're going to do a bit of reading in the book of Esther. It can be found in the Old Testament between Nehemiah and Job. We don't know who wrote the book, but it's got some romance. It's got a bit of action and it's got more plot twists and turns than a Harrison Ford movie. But I think this morning there are four key things that we can take away from the book of Esther. Number one is God has a plan for your life. Number two is Satan has a plan for your life. Number three is you have a choice. Number four is God has the answer and the answer is Jesus Christ. So I want to start with this thought that God has a plan for your life. But firstly, I kind of want to set the scene and I'm going to recap a bit of biblical history. So the Jews had rebelled against God by serving other gods and God had showed his displeasure by allowing them to be carried off into captivity. The northern kingdom of Israel was carried off into captivity by Assyria and the southern kingdom was carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. Fortunately, this wasn't the end of the story for Israel because God had a plan of salvation for them and his intention was to bring them back from captivity. And the book of Esther is really pivotal in revealing this plan. In fact, God had in mind such a larger plan of salvation than just bringing the Jews back to their homeland because God planned all along that a baby would be born in Bethlehem to a Jewish family and that that child Jesus would grow up to be the saviour of the world. So in order for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem to a Jewish family, God was going to have to release the Jews from their captivity and bring them back to their homeland. The account of Esther begins in about 483 BC and King Xerxes was throwing a massive party that had been going on for six months. His kingdom was expansive. It ranged from India to northern Africa and he was at this party entertaining all the VIPs from the 127 provinces that he ruled. And at the end of this opulent display of his wealth, he had a final seven-day drinking binge. And on the seventh day, when Xerxes and all the nobles were well and truly drunk, he ordered Queen Vashti to appear before them to show off her beauty. And some biblical scholars would say that what he meant was that she was to come wearing only her crown. Well, this queen refused to come. And this caused Xerxes to burn with anger. And so he asked his advisors what could be done about this situation. And their advice was to divorce her. After all, they couldn't have all the wives in the kingdoms disobeying their husbands. And so the king banished Vashti from his presence forever. 
But sometime later he got a bit lonely and decided that he kind of missed having a queen around. And his palace officials were again quick to offer a solution, a beauty contest. They would round up all the most beautiful and desirable virgins in the kingdom and he could have his pick of a new queen. Well, for some reason, he really liked that idea and told them to get on it right away. And as the Miss Persia beauty pageant began, Esther was selected as one of the contestants because of her great beauty. Her parents had died when she was very young and her cousin, a Jewish noble by the name of Mordecai, had raised her as though she were his own daughter. And she was pampered and given special food and beauty treatments. Ladies, she had the ultimate makeover. And when her time came to be considered by the king, he was so mesmerised by her that he made her the queen. Mordecai advised her to keep her identity as a Jew a secret, and she did. Anyway, Xerxes probably didn't care where she was from. He was in love and he had a new queen, so all was well in his world. Queen Esther must have helped Mordecai get a job at the palace because the Bible tells us that while he was on duty at the palace, he uncovered a plot to assassinate the king. Mordecai told Queen Esther, she told the king, and these assassins were caught and hung. Now, I'm going to come back to this point that God has a plan for your life, but do you already see what is happening? God was setting in motion the plan of salvation for the Jews, and he was using an unknown virgin Jewish girl to make it happen It kind of has a bit of a familiar ring. The second lesson that we can take from the book of Esther is that Satan has a plan for your life. And I want us to read a bit of Esther now so we can get some context. We're going to read from Esther chapter 3, starting at verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. If I say that really fast, it makes it sound like I know what I'm saying. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it works. Elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the poor, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman, to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. 
So what this means is that Haman had to wait a whole year to carry out his ethnic cleansing. And I wonder who caused the lot to fall as it did. Maybe Proverbs 16.33 gives us a clue. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It's a good reminder that our God is sovereign. He sits on the throne, the earth is his footstool, and he is the one in charge of everything, no matter what circumstances might look like. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among all the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and he gave it to son of, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day, which was about two weeks later, on the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all of Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, all on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province, and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa, which was the capital of Persia. And then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Right off the bat, we see that King Xerxes was a drunk. And as a drunk, he didn't really care what was happening in his far-flung kingdom as long as it didn't interfere with his partying. But something else is emerging in this story, and that is the devil's relentless desire to destroy God's people. Over the past six weeks, Pastor Dave has been taking us on a journey through the Old Testament exploring the plans and purposes of a relentless God who loves his people unconditionally and will go to great lengths to be in relationship with them. But all along, there has been a relentless enemy working to derail God's plan and destroy his people. He tried to kill all the baby boys in Egypt because he knew a type of saviour was going to be born. That saviour with a small s was Moses. You know, the devil likes it when people are in bondage to him. 
And the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt and he loved it. But God had other plans and he miraculously delivered Moses from sure death and he went on to lead the Jews out of slavery. So Satan started working overtime to try and spoil God's plan for the Jews and he was successful in tempting the first generation of Jews that escaped from Egypt because none of them were allowed to enter the promised land because of their lack of faith and rebellion. Again, Satan tried to destroy the Jews when he led them into the rebellion of idolatry and witchcraft, which caused them to be captured by the Persians and the Babylonians. And now, here we are in the book of Esther, and we see Satan hatching a plan to kill the entire population of Jews. We shouldn't be surprised, should we? Because in John 10.10, Jesus says this of Satan, that he comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I, Jesus, have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Satan knew that if he could wipe out the Jews, he would spoil God's plan of salvation for the world. Did you know that only 60% of Australians believe that the devil is just a symbol of evil? They don't see him as Satan, just a symbol of evil. And I wonder if we fall into that way of thinking sometimes. Nowhere in the book of Esther is Satan actually mentioned, but we see his handiwork everywhere. And just as an aside, God isn't mentioned either, but you will see how God worked and was working to bring salvation to his people. Do you recall when King Herod ordered all the baby boys born in Bethlehem during the time of Christ's birth to be killed? Who do you suppose put that idea in Herod's head? And Satan thought he was finally successful the day that Jesus was nailed to the cross at Calvary, but was he in for a surprise? When the church was born, Satan had double trouble. Now instead of one group of God's chosen people, he had two groups, Christians and Jews. Historically, we've seen how Satan has tried to eliminate both Christians and the Jews. He was highly successful in the Middle Ages and even more recently with the Jewish Holocaust in Nazi Germany. There is no doubt that Satan hates God's people. He wants nothing better than to kill you, to rob you of your joy, and to steal your soul. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. No matter who you are or what your current circumstances are, the one thing that we all have in common today is this, that two opposing beings have plans for your life today. Jesus' plan is to give you life to the full. Satan's plan is to stop you from achieving God's intended purposes for your life. I believe that one of his biggest weapons is distraction. Our world is so big and it's so busy and there are so many things vying for our time and our attention. And some of them are good things, 
but they're not necessarily God things. And I, church, I think this is so important that I want to park us here just for a little bit. Do you remember the story of Nehemiah? He was called by God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You know, in Old Testament times, Jerusalem was seen as the city of God. It was God's dwelling place and it it was the centre of life for all the Jews. And after God's people had been carried off into captivity, Jerusalem fell to rack and ruin and it actually became a laughing stock for the other nations. Because in ancient cities, walls represented strength and might and the favour of your God. Well, Jerusalem's walls were ruined and this was symbolic of what had happened to God's people living in captivity in foreign lands. But whenever a man like Nehemiah says, I will arise and build, Satan says, then I will arise and oppose. Satan intentionally makes things difficult when we rise up and decide to give ourselves to God's purposes. When the walls were close to being finished, Nehemiah's enemies went to extreme lengths to distract Nehemiah and bring the work to a halt. It was a desperate attempt to stop God's city from being re-established. If you've got your Bibles there, you turn to Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messages to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Nehemiah was busy doing the work that God had called him to do. He said over and over that he would not be distracted from the work, from the call on his life. I don't know about you, but after the second or third call, I probably would have caved. It kind of reminds me of when the kids were little and we'd be in the supermarket at the register and the chocolates are right there and, can I have one? Can I just have one, please, mum? And after about the second or third time, it's, here, have it. I just want peace in my life. Can you imagine the frustration Satan would feel if every time that distraction threatened to stop us from spending time with God, threatened to stop us from reaching out to those who are not in relationship with Jesus, threatened to stop us from gathering together on a Sunday to worship him and press into him. If we all said, I am carrying on a great work and cannot go down. Or if we're involved in a ministry project and events keep happening that threaten to derail it, that rather than giving up, if we pick up the pieces and say to ourselves, we are carrying on a great work and cannot go down. 
Esther, like Nehemiah, was called by God for a mighty work. And sometimes our mission feels kind of minuscule in comparison. But church, it's the same mission that we're called to be partners in. So how can we discern when Satan is messing with us? Well, for me, I'm kind of excited that if I even recognize that a distraction might be present, that's progress for me. But then I run it through the WWJD filter. What would Jesus do? What are his priorities? Is the distraction taking me away from time with him? Relationship with others are next. Am I growing my relationships, sowing into the lives of others, or is the distraction causing me to neglect relationships, causing distance and a disconnect? And am I helping others, investing in their lives, or am I always following selfish pursuits? For me, these are the times when I need to say, I am carrying on a great work and cannot go down. I need to stay the course. The ultimate question is simple. Who will you listen to? If we listen to the tempter, we're going to become the walking dead. The temptation is not sin. It's the yielding to it that kills us. When we succumb, we're agreeing with the enemy and whomever we believe will determine our destiny. Satan has a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. Who will you listen to? I don't know about you, but Satan loves to play DJ in my mind, playing records of lies I don't want to dance with the devil. I don't even want the devil on my dance card. Our challenges may be different to Esther's, but it is the same enemy who seeks to distract us and derail us and undermine our effectiveness as Christ followers, which leads us to the third lesson that we can take from the book of Esther. You have a choice. Like Esther, we have a choice to make, a choice of faith, which involves risk or a choice to do nothing. Let's quickly look at Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, that is the edict to kill the Jews, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews." He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, 
which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told her, him, Hathak, to urge her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception for this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is basically saying three things to Esther. Number one, don't think that you're going to escape the Holocaust when it happens. You're going to be wiped out just like everybody else when he finds out that you are one of God's chosen people. Number two, if you refuse to step up, God will send someone else. The bottom line was that if Esther refused to seize the moment, she would miss out on this amazing opportunity to serve God and to blow the blessings that were going to come through faith and obedience. But she could not tie the hands of God. Church, no one will ever stop the plans that God has in this world. But we can And I think we often do forfeit the amazing opportunity to be part of what God is doing. And number three, Mordecai is saying to Esther, this is your purpose in life. This is what God has made you to do. Esther, you might not understand how you got where you are, why you were even there. Maybe you don't even like where you are, but I want you to know, Esther, that you are where you are this very moment so that God can accomplish his will through you. And this is why you are right where you are now. Have you ever wondered, with the world in such a mess, why God didn't save people like Peter and Paul for today? We sure could use them. Because God knew that you and I would be here. When Esther hears those powerful words, her faith and her courage began to kick in. The Christian walk is a walk of faith. God doesn't always reveal his perfect will and allow us to see that the destiny he has set in place for our lives. He asks us to trust him and to take that leap of faith, allowing him to guide us every step of the way. And often it's not until we've accomplished a major goal or reached a milestone that we look back and we can see that God has been leading us all along. 
Perhaps God's placed you in a job environment or a school environment or a family situation where you feel overwhelmed or even trapped. Perhaps you're asking, God, why am I here? Isn't there a better place where I can work and serve you better? Let's see how Esther responds to her situation. Verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Mordecai was right. Esther had been chosen for just this time. She would be the instrument through which God would bring salvation to his people. It would require faith in action on her part. It would require risk on her part. But people were going to die if she didn't act. How many times have we said, when I just get my life sorted, then I'll be able to serve God? Or when I just resolve this situation, I can give attention to God's stuff. Or when I just get my act together, then I'll be good enough for God to use. The relentless enemy is written all over that. We need to view the challenges and the roadblocks in our lives as opportunities to drive us deeper into God. Deeper into his presence, deeper into his promises, deeper into his grace, deeper into his mercy, not as reasons to excuse us from what God is doing in the world. Time doesn't allow me to detail how it all worked out. So let me fast forward to the final scene of the story. Esther and Mordecai are walking in the palace garden. The sun is shining. It's a clear blue sky. And as they stroll, the following facts come up on the screen. In the days following Haman's execution, yes, Haman was the one who ended up losing his life. Queen Esther was given all of his estate, both land and property. King Xerxes issued a new decree that saved the Jewish people. There were great celebrations held amongst the Jewish people throughout the empire and because of that, many Gentiles turned to God and Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister with the authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. Church, today we are in the same position as Esther. People are going to die if we don't act. If we don't put our faith in action, if we don't take a risk, people are going to die a thousand deaths in an eternity called hell. But there's good news on the horizon and this is the fourth and final thing we're going to take away from the book of Esther this morning and that is that God has the answer and the answer is Jesus Christ. Queen Esther made a decision to lay her life on the line to save her people. What are we willing to die for? Are we really willing to give up everything for Jesus? 
Our God is alive and moving in this world and his divine plan of redemption and deliverance is still unfolding and we, like Esther, have invited to be part of it. God is inviting us to be part of something that is so much bigger than ourselves, something that will outlive and outlast us, something awesome and powerful and eternal, where captives will be set free, the brokenhearted will be comforted, the good news will be preached to the poor, bondages will be broken, hope will be renewed, the lost will be found, knees will bow, tongues confess, the nations will hear of his name, his kingdom will advance, Darkness will give way to light. Salt will become salty again. Lives will be lived like Jesus. The victory will be run and Jesus Christ will return. Amen. These things will come to pass. There is no doubt about it. Read the Bible. The only question that remains for us is will you be part of it? Will you seize the divine moments that God calls you to be part of. When you boil it all down, it comes down to one thing, desire. What is your desire? If your desire is to be used by God, he will use you. The invisible hand of God is evident in every single detail of that story, even though he is not directly mentioned. He was at work, think about this, filtering 25 million women to one Jew chosen to be queen. Not Haman, not Satan using Haman could destroy the people of God or put an end to God's promises to preserve his people for the coming of the Messiah and the ultimate salvation of Israel. No one no matter how they attempt to destroy the people of God and the purposes of God can succeed because God's covenant love for his people will be fulfilled and is being fulfilled. And the message for you is this. While you're going through life and trying to make sure you fix up all the little pieces of your life, understand this. That there is over and in and above and below your life a divine architect ordering every detail. And if you belong to him, he is your reward. Not changed circumstances, not an easier life, not the life you've always wanted or the job you've always wanted. Being in relationship with Jesus Christ and fulfilling his plans and purposes is the reward in the here and now. Perhaps like Queen Esther, you've been brought to a similar place in your life. Worship team can come up. A place of loneliness, a place of fear, of uncertainty, of doubt, of indecision and questioning. Esther experienced every one of those same feelings, yet God had her in his perfect will. For such a time as this, God has brought us to where we are now. For such a time as this, there are many in our families who do not know God. For such a time as this, there are souls to be saved in the workplace. 
For such a time as this, you are living next door to your neighbours for a reason. For such a time as this, God is calling his people, men, women, young people, all of his people, to spread the good news. For such a time as this, God has prepared you to reach out to the lost and the lonely and the hurting people all around you. God has a purpose for every circumstance in your life. There is no doubt that these are challenging days to live in. And we could become pretty distressed about the way things are going in our world. It's chaotic, it's disturbing, and it's frightening. But not so in God's kingdom. The divine architect is ordering our lives, those who belong to him. And he is ordering our lives to his eternal glory, every part. How wonderful to live in that confidence. And this is what it truly means to live life to the full, loved unconditionally by a relentless God. Church, when you're in Christ, nothing is wasted. Every conversation, every opportunity to serve, every relationship can advance God's kingdom and lead us and others to the lives we've always wanted. We are here for such a time as this. Let's embrace it and live. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Penrith Church of Christ. If there was anything in this message that you would like to talk further about, please go to our website on www.cofcpenrith.org. That's www.cofcpenrith.org.